a Podcast One production. Money isn't everything, but it ranks right up there with oxygen. And like oxygen, the less you have, the more important it becomes. Like it or not, money makes the world go around. And whilst it's true you can bootstrap a startup on next to nothing, at some point, you need to scale. And scaling takes money, and lots of it. Scaling to pay for staff, for advertising, for tech development and more. If you've exhausted your own stash of cash and need to find more to fund your funky idea, you may need access to other people's money. So where do you find it? And how can you get your hands on it? I'm Bernadette Schwert, and this is How to Build an Online Business. If you think the fastest way to double your money is to fold it over and put it in your back pocket, you haven't met Owen Harriford. Owen is a former investment banker with Goldman Sachs and an angel investor in multiple startups. He knows where the gold is buried and he's here to show you where to dig. So what is the definition of scaling? What does that mean? It's an interesting question. And I think from, from my perspective, there are two ways we can look at it. One is the technical consultant version of what a scale-up actually is, which is someone that has greater than a company that has greater than 10 employees and then over the last three years has annualized growth greater than 20%. So that's a technical definition of a scale-up. If we look at it in layman's terms, what does that mean? It means from going from a startup which is trying to prove your product, your minimum viable product, what it is that I have that I'm trying to build, is there a space for this in the economy, and then growing that to actually having it in terms of being a scalable product, something that you can grow, something that, that, can, that can actually develop within the market is really what that focus is. And that, that's where that growth comes from. Over three years, 20% plus growth. So you're proving that there is a need in the market, you've identified a need in the market, and that's what you're trying to roll out into the market. You've got a lot of tips on how to scale a business. And I think they're really valuable, Owen, because a business starting out may want to go global. And if they start strong, and they start on the right foot, they've got a better chance of doing that. So can you take us through some of those tips on how they can scale from the get-go? Sure. So if we split that into two different bits there, Bernadette, one is how do you go from a startup into a scale-up, right? So when you're looking at a startup, you're focusing on running hard at something, creating a minimal viable product, looking at perfecting the product, looking at making, you're a one-man shop, you're making all the decisions, you're, you're, you're running around and making sure that you do whatever's necessary to get it out the door. And then when you take that leap into a scale-up, you take a step back and you say, right, I've identified who my customers are, what it is I need to do, and you're focused more on selling. You're focused more on selling to that customer base that you've identified. You're focused on making sure that you start to employ the right people to make those decisions. You start delegating that decision-making. You start to grow your company. You start to be more effective and efficient. You start to say, right, what are my priorities and what are my opportunities? What do I need to put in there? What what systems do I need to put? What rigor? What infrastructure? So, for example, I might start looking at more detailed accounting systems. I start looking at going from a simple 
running it on a monthly basis and, and running it and pivoting it when I've got this startup business to actually saying, right, now I need a one-year and a three-year plan. How do I execute against a one-year and a three-year plan? Because I've started to have this presence and I'm starting to build the momentum. So what am I going to put in place to make sure that I can continue building that momentum? We've gone from startup to scale-up. And now let's say we want to pitch an idea to an investor to get some money. What do investors want to hear if we're pitching to them? There are two ways to address that. One is, do we look at at what point in the cycle do you approach investors? Do you, do you approach investors at the startup level when you've just got an idea and a concept and we can talk about the different forms of funding at that stage or do you actually bootstrap, which is mean, which basically means that you're getting enough money in the door that you don't actually look for investment and that's all the money that you're getting, you're reinvesting into the business just to keep it growing. So that's, that's the way an entrepreneur traditionally does the bootstrapping method. When you approach an investor, some of the questions I suppose that from an investor perspective that you sit back and you look at, what do you want to know? What do you want to hear? And you want to know what is the problem that you are solving, right? What is the entrepreneur solving for? Is there evidence that this exists? Who's this customer? And is this problem a big problem? Is it a recurring problem? And how are you solving it? Is it unique in the way that you're approaching it? What makes you different from the competitors? And the way that you're solving it, is it defendable? By defendable, do you mean that you own a unique recipe or a patent? Is that what you mean by defendable? Potentially. It, it's also the ability to understand your customers. So do you know how to reach your customers and can you scale whatever it is that you've built into your customers? Therefore, once they adopt it, it's going to be harder for your competitors to, to either come in and do what you're doing or you've built enough momentum and mass to keep going. When you talk about Defendable, Owen, a company that comes to mind is Afterpay the company that's gone global very quickly. And why they come to mind is because they developed a product literally out of thin air. It's a tech-based product. There's no product in, in the tangible sense. And it's scalable, it's frictionless, and a lot of people want to use it. And there's no problem either side. The retailers want it, the consumers want it. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you see in Afterpay that's made them create a defendable product? Sure. It goes back to what we were talking about. They identify a niche with, with regards to their customer and the way that they've launched it, the, the technology and their ability to execute is probably the mo one of the most important keys that people look for as an investor. We look at how the team, the management team execute against their business plan. And from an afterpay perspective, one of the key factors you would consider is, is the market large enough to eventually deliver a 10 times scalable product? And clearly from Afterpay, you see that's very true. The adoption has been at a phenomenal rate. And even then to take that globally into the US and to roll out through a partnership and what they're doing, um, it, it talks to everything that we've just been discussing before. But I think the execution, the identification of the customer, what problem are you solving for? They're all, they're all key ingredients and I think Afterpay is a brilliant example. What I like about Afterpay is people didn't know they had the problem. <laughs> you know, once this product got launched, people thought, you know what, that's great. Why don't I? It's a great idea. 
And the other thing you talk about is execution. And I think what Nick Molnar did, who's one of the co-founders of Afterpay, is he linked up with Mark Carnegie, you know, the uh, venture capitalist. And I think he's a young man. He was, I think, 27 or around about when he started. So he's a very young man in, in this context. And he's partnering with these titans of business. So that's what you're talking about is an execution and finding the right people around you. Correct. And you see that the passion as well for what you're creating comes through because as an investor, you want to see that that person is going to be in it for the long haul. They also know when to ask for help. They also know how to partner up with the right people to go and deliver something and execute against that plan that they have. So as much as it's the investor taking um, a risk on, on the entrepreneur, it goes the other way around as well, making sure that the entrepreneur partners up with the right people to deliver and help them execute against what they have in terms of their idea. It's We, we talk through in the funding side of the business or uh, getting the funding for, for companies, but more importantly, it's what else do people bring to the table? What are the strategic benefits rather than just capital? At what point in the cycle do you need that to help grow your business? And that's where the value add comes from. It's not just capital in the broader sense of financial. It's also the strategic benefits that people will bring that will help you scale your business, grow your business and help you execute. You mentioned the, uh, the the investors looking at the startup entrepreneur and the skill set and the mentality. And just using Afterpay as an example, Nick Molnar's past background was with an online jewellery company called Ice. And so he had demonstrated a lot of experience and expertise in getting that business up and running. And so when he moved over to this fintech product, which was really quite separate from jewellery, as you can imagine, I think the investors thought, wow, this guy's actually got some runs on the board. He may not be an expert at fintech, but he's an expert in online business. So what you're saying there is that the investors do look to the history and the background of the startup entrepreneur. Absolutely. You mentioned passion. And I, I'd like to talk about the passion of the entrepreneur because sometimes people think, oh, I don't want to be too enthusiastic. I don't want to be uncool about how excited I am about my product. But what I'm saying is this passion needs to be communicated and that the investors want to see this passion from the startup entrepreneur. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Because if you think about it, you are taking, as an entrepreneur, you are taking a step out of your comfort zone and you're going after something that you think and you've proven that there is a need for in the market. You've proven the, the, the minimum viable product, you've proven your competitor analysis, you've proven that you've got a customer and that there's an actual need, but that all needs to come out when you talk about it. And with entrepreneurs, generally what you'd find is that they are very passionate about what they do. They're, they're driven by creating something that didn't potentially exist before and solving for a problem. And that's really important because when you uncover something like that, you want to be heard and you want to talk about it and, and the passion naturally comes through. If I'm a 60-year-old person with a chunk of cash to invest, I guess what I'm also buying is that young person's energy, would you say? Absolutely. Because the fortitude to actually go down this track and keep going, even there are a lot of times in the face of adversity when things are going wrong, it certainly needs, it needs passion and it needs the strength, right? And needs the energy to be able to deliver ultimately against a plan that you're setting forth for the next three years. And maybe that's what a startup really needs to think about. An entrepreneur, a young entrepreneur, is that what this older or more experienced person is buying is my youth, is my energy. And they shouldn't underestimate that. 
True. And it's also a good balance because the person from the other side brings in a whole wealth of experience. And generally that also comes from, as you know, with experience, you make mistakes and you want to learn from those mistakes. And they can certainly share some of those mistakes that they've made along the way, but that, that is invaluable. It's a, it's a combination of both. It's that energy and that experience and, and bringing that invaluable nature of what you're creating to the table. So I'm in the room with an investor. They're interested. I'm passionate. Got my idea, my MVP. What don't the investors want to hear? That's a good question. I think it's it's a tough question to answer because generally it's that fine line we talk about passion and we want the entrepreneur to be out there talking about his company, talking about what his vision is, what his dream is, what he sees as being in three years. But it's a, it's a fine line because the one thing you don't want to hear is someone walking in saying, this is how I'm going to dominate the world. This is going to be global domination. They you want to see an entrepreneur that can articulate what he sees in the next three years in not an overly conservative manner, but in a realistic manner. You also want to see someone who has put a lot of thought behind where they're going, not hockey stick projections. And when I talk about hockey stick projections, we all know that in year one, I'm losing a million dollars, but by year three, I'm going to be making $150 million. Is that realistic? Have you actually articulated that in a meaningful way that I can actually believe that you're going to do that? So that's, again, a, a fine line to, to make sure that people can do that. And then the last is a, a company formation. So, for example, you want to make sure that people have simple company structures. There aren't trusts going on and there aren't uninvestable structures because generally you want it to make it simple that people can actually invest in your company in a simple manner, know what they're going to invest in because they're taking ultimately the view on you as an individual to be able to deliver against a business plan but also deliver against your vision. This brings the question, Owen, about valuation of a company in a startup because if I'm sitting here with an investor and they say to me, what's the company worth? How do I value a company if I haven't actually started it? The, the value of the company, especially with regards to something that doesn't have any revenue generation, and it goes back to whether or not it's pre-seed money. So when we look at where in terms of the capital financing or the funding is that you need. So if you're trying to prove a minimal viable product and the, f the first per person you probably go to are going to be your family and friends. And you turn around to them and you say, right, I've got this idea. Here it is on paper. Will you back me? And they turn around and say, right, how much do you need? And say, well, I need... A million dollars. I'd love to know who your family and friends like are. A million. <laughs> that, that would be great to have that, uh, to ha have that in terms of being able to access a million dollars. But you say, right, I need $100,000. $100,000. That's a situation. <laughs> <laughs> I could find that on the street. <laughs> to, to go and develop this. And... It would be unreasonable for you to turn around and say, right, for $100,000, I want 80% of your business. That doesn't quite work. So you want to make sure that you're giving the entrepreneur the ability to go out there and build something and develop something because you know that this is just the first step in what will be several funding rounds, but also the first step in creating value creating value for the entrepreneur, for yourself, for the economy, and everything should work together. Generally, at that pre-seed round, before we even talk about valuation, you're talking about taking somewhere between 5 to 10% of the company for that $100,000, if it is $100,000, to prove 
that it goes from a concept into a minimal viable product. I think that's an important point. It's 5 to 10% of the company because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are out there thinking, mum and dad want to invest or my best mate, how much should I give them? And you're saying it's 5 to 10% of a figure. Of a figure, correct. I watch Shark Tank a lot and often I see the way they value a company and I think it's quite clever in a, in a way because it's simple. Yep. They'll say, okay, we sell this product for $50 and we think we're going to sell a thousand, well, that values our company at that. That's pretty as sim- much as simple as it gets, isn't it? Correct. And th- at that point in time, though, we're moving beyond a minimal viable product into something that they've actually developed. So we go from pre-seed where this is just a concept to into seed funding where I've developed something. So I actually have it here and I've sold it to my first 10 customers. So I have a pricing point now where I can say, right, if I sell... 10,000 of those in the next six months or two years, then here's what I think the valuation should be. So that's, again, it's a very simple way of doing it, but it's it's also an effective way of doing it. Would you say, Owen, that a startup should maybe get some runs on the board, make some money, sell a few products, and then go for funding, even to their family and friends? Or should they actually start from the get-go and ask for funding from the, without any track record? It depends on whether they need the funding. That's probably the easiest way to answer that question because if they don't need it, absolutely. The bootstrapping method of, right, I'm going to try run really hard at this, do this as simple as I can, and then the money I get from whatever I've created, I can then reinvest into the company and wait until six months down the track where rather than selling 10, I've sold 1,000 and now I need to scale it a bit more. I guess also if you do it that way, then you can maybe hold on to a little bit more of the company because you've got a bit of track record. Does that, I don't need to give away so much because I'm pretty confident that I can do this. Correct. I have a friend in Adelaide. This is a true story. He's a fintech entrepreneur. He's got a startup and he had some family and friends invest in his business. And he told me that sometimes he's sitting there on Saturday morning on Unley Road in Adelaide and he sees some of his investors walking up the street and he's thinking that they're thinking, why aren't you at work? Why aren't you working harder to give me a return on my investment? And so there's this fine line, isn't there, about when you do deal with family and friends and you take their money. Any tips on how we can make that process a little um, streamlined or a little less stressful? I'm going to give you an example. There was a Bloomberg, Bloomberg article last week that I thought was brilliant, and it was called A Hidden Amazon Fortune, I think, about Jeff Bezos. And it said that his parents are potentially worth billions. Now, Jeff Bezos went to his parents and in this article and said, I need 250000 to come up with this business idea and I've got it and I want to roll it out. And his parents, his mother and his stepfather, gave him the two hundred fifty grand. Now, the, there's a great line in the article that goes somewhere along the lines of, I want you, so this is Jeff Bezos talking to his parents, I want you to know how risky this is because when I come for dinner at Thanksgiving, I don't want you to be mad at me. Right, And that, to me, encapsulates just exactly what it is when it comes to family and friends. I'm asking you for money. This is high risk. I'm going to do my best. You're trusting me with your money to run as hard as I can at this. But there's a chance you might lose your money. But now, as Bezos' parents, they're worth north of $30 billion, that 250000 Now, we all wish we have stories like that, but, but it's just it's a great way to look at it. Because if the person is sitting there, you've given them money, you, you've trusted them with your money. And how they go about doing it 
you bought into their vision, whether they're sitting in a coffee shop or whether they're sitting in an office environment, does that make you feel any better? Because I think also in this day and age with, with mobile and, and being able to to speak to people through whether it's Slack and, and run whole teams through Slack or whether email or video conferencing, we, we're not really confined to, to where we need to be. Um, it, it opens up a lot more doors for us these days than I think it ever did before with a office environment because I need a printer, I need a fax machine. God, that's going back a while, but but you see what I mean. So all of a sudden now in a coffee shop, you could probably get just as, say, amount done, if not more, because you're, you're meeting people and it becomes not just your place of work, but it also comes your meeting spot for people, for networking and, and everything else it creates. The co-working spaces are another great example of that. I'm Bernadette Schwert, and this is How to Build an Online Business. More after the break. Let's say I do get some investors, it's family and friends, and I'm giving them 5 to 10%. How do I document this? How serious do we need to get? Is it the back of the envelope stuff and we stick, you know, stick it in the filing cabinet, or do we actually go to a lawyer and draw it up? How, how detailed does this need to be? Ultimately, you need a roadmap. And I think at the moment there are a lot of there are a lot of avenues for be able, for to, to be able to access some of this documentation that there wasn't previously. There's a lot more on the government websites. There's a there's a lot more with regards to to lawyers that can help you for a cheap boilerplate type approach. And it's always good to document. It's always good to document because I think it's all going well until it isn't. And that's about as simple as I can put it, because at that point in time, you want to rely on something. And it doesn't have to be overly complicated. It doesn't have to be 300 pages long, but it can be something quite simple in a few pages that you both agree to and say, right, that makes sense to both of us. Let's just see where it goes to from here. On that point, if you are in doubt, I would say just go and see a lawyer, pay a few hundred dollars, get the document reviewed. It protects both your interests and you know that you've set a roadmap for the way you deal with each other and your friendship doesn't get in the way because you actually have a legal document that says this is how we're going to behave. If I'm in a room with an investor and I want to make my business as attractive to them as possible, what should I be focused on in terms of the way I build my business? I think there are three elements that I would focus on and not in any particular order. But if you look at it, primarily, number one, it's about revenues. So whatever happens within your company, you have to prove that you can generate revenue, that you can get customers and you can get revenue. And selling is actually quite difficult. So if you're not a natural salesperson, what do you do? You go and hire someone that's very good at selling your product because ultimately revenue is the lifeblood of your company in the ability to grow, to prove that it's viable and to go forward. The next one I would say is having the ability, so number two would be to have the ability to have a strong team around you. And whether that's a tech team, so the IT guys that help build your backbone if it's a tech company, for example, or to have a strong team in place that also helps you network. And as an entrepreneur, that is probably slightly underestimated with regards to how important that is because networking is a very important skill because you need to be out there talking to people, finding out what the market is doing, bringing that intelligence back to what you're doing. 
and also finding out what other people are doing in different spaces because you never know where that next opportunity might arise. The third thing, which ties into a certain degree to revenues, but it's know your numbers. And it's not just about your profit and loss at the end of the day, but it's knowing at what point does your company break even, right? Where is it that you're going to make your profit? Right? This is really important for an entrepreneur to understand, to, under, to, to go through and be able to to tell someone or speak to someone about exactly what their finances look like. It doesn't need to be to the 10th degree in terms of granularity and detail, but it needs to be strong enough that it proves that you have a good grasp of the numbers and what you're delivering in your business. I want to pick up on the point you made with number one, which was revenue. And when I've talked to entrepreneurs, what I've got back from them is this sense that some startups think, I've got to sell a thousand products, you know, to a thousand people before I can call it a success. And what they're saying is, no, you need to sell one product to one person. And then that one person becomes two people and two people become four. So it's it's almost a mindset. So because some people think, well, I, I can't start because I don't have thousands of customers. And they're saying, no, you need one and focus on getting the one. What do you say to that idea about just starting small and building up from there? When you go away from or when you move from a minimal viable product into actually something that's that's scalable and you're rolling out, you've identified who that customer is. And by having that one sale, you're proving that there is a market for it, that there is a customer base for it. And then you need to extrapolate that into saying, I've identified this customer, they've just bought it. Now, can I now re- leverage that and continue to grow that customer base? And that's really important because I, as, as I was saying before, moving from a startup to a scale-up, in a startup, you're in this you're in a headspace of, I've got to make sure this is perfect. I've got to make sure this is right. I've got to do this, this, and this. Okay, you've done that. Now you want to scale. So getting that first few sales and then rolling it out, that becomes scalable. That becomes the growth. But focusing in on that very niche or, or that one particular customer base that you started with is, is where you kind of begin. And the reason I mention this is because a lot of entrepreneurs that I've dealt with in coaching is they say, I'm not ready to launch it. And they've got this dream and they know that the minute they launch it and it doesn't work, that's the end of the dream. And so they're very reluctant sometimes to go for that one customer because they think if I don't get it, that's a failure. So I think that's why I mentioned that because I do want people to understand that you've got to put it out there. You've got to find that one sale. Correct. Because that validates everything you're doing, right? And it's the validation that helps you grow and then deliver and take that next step. But these are all baby steps along the process. And that, that first step is probably the most important step. Let's talk about funding and the sources of funding. We've already dealt with family and friends and we've got something from them, maybe. What do we do next if we need more money? Who do we go to? So we alluded to this earlier and we talked about going to angel investors so when you look at pre-seed funding, that's your family and friends, I've got a concept. Now I've developed that concept, now I've got a minimal viable product and I want to roll that out. So you go to potentially angel investors. And generally these are professional investors, business executives or successful entrepreneurs who actively participate and sometimes in the pre-seed round or 
within the seed funding rounds. So this is now to grow your product and roll, start to roll it out in, in a bit more scale. And these generally range in amounts from 100,000 up to 2 million. Now, great, like you've got friends that can clearly put a million dollars into the business, but if you don't, then we can move into a group of angel investors. So not necessarily one, but generally you can get a group of angel investors that will contribute capital and take a stake in your company. And this, as a rule of thumb, where we were talking about before with regards to family and friends taking 5 to 10%, this could be up to 20% of the company. But what do they bring? And I think more importantly, what we want to say is that you know we're at this kind of initial prototype and we are now going to start to roll this out and you use the angel investors to, to help you from that strategic knowledge. Like I say, they're, they're ex-successful entrepreneurs, they're, they're professional investors, so they could open doors for you, they can help you with your business plan, help you with your finances. So it's not just about the financial capital again, it's much more about the intellectual capital that they bring to help you grow the business. Angel investors can bring money, they can bring the smarts, they can bring experience and they can open doors. What else can they bring to the table? The other intangible factors that they bring, they're seasoned experts. And if you bring some of them in, they provide mentoring, advice on the strategy and execution, helping with your next capital raise, opening doors like you say, but that's on your keeping an eye on where do we go to from here, which is leads into and perhaps for another conversation on Series A, Series B and Series C fundraising, which is more targeted towards institutional investors. But the other bit of advice that they could potentially offer would be with regards to staffing, marketing, and sales strategies. Where would we find these wonderful angel investors? Goes back to what we were talking about earlier about networking. So as an entrepreneur, that's part of your job as well, to access and to meet these people. There are a lot of angel groups around the country that have been set up in in Sydney, in Melbourne, in uh, Brisbane, and they're quite easy to to look up onto the internet and go and meet people, go and introduce. And again, it's coming in minds, it's meeting in minds, right? Because sometimes there are some angel investors that have specific sector or industry knowledge that you might find more relevant and might work for you as an entrepreneur as opposed to just, again, the, the capital or in a space where you're not so sure about. Are angels really angels or are there some limitations with using an angel investor? It can't be all good news. What's the negatives? It depends, again, on how much involvement they want in the company. So sometimes what you will see is that they're often assigned a board seat and they can be actively more involved in the running and the management of the company as opposed to other equity partners. And it comes down to documentation as well. So at this point in time, there will probably be a more formalized process with regards to lawyers around the documentation process. And in that, depending on how that's structured and who is structuring it for you, whether it's the angel investor, it's probably a good idea to get some advice on making sure that the entrepreneur and the angel investor are protected if things don't necessarily go to plan. Can we assume that angels aren't all angels and that we should maybe approach every deal with a degree of scepticism? That's fair to say. 
And it was also the reason why I mentioned before about getting legal advice to make sure both of you are protected. But you've also got to remember that you're starting this journey having some basis of trust. And that's really important. And as in life, you have good and you have the bad and you've got to roll with both of them and you learn, but it is protecting yourself and making sure that both parties are protected. On a practical level, would that mean getting separate lawyers versus the angel saying, look, I've got a great lawyer, here's her number? Yes, is, is, is probably the easiest way to answer it because <laughs> if you want to be assured that your interests are being protected, an independent lawyer that you trust would be the best way to go. What about sweat We often hear about entrepreneurs who take on a tech developer or a sales guru and they own a little bit of the company. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that sweat works? Sure. So at a very basic level, if I provide a service to you uh, in terms of labour, you pay me in, in cash or a financial return. When I provide services to you in terms of labour and you can't afford to pay me, you pay me in equity in the company. Now, as with all these things, if I, if I turn around to you and say, I've given you $200,000 worth of my labor and I need $200,000 worth of the equity in the business, it's a bit of a hard one, right? Because ultimately it goes back to how do you value that business and am I asking for 80% of the business? Well, what am I going to incentivize you with? So it's a fine line between knowing where I step in and say, of that 200000 that I've given you, what am I comfortable with, with taking in terms of equity and what the entrepreneur believes is fair, right? And you strike that early on and saying, well, you can get up to whatever work you do, you can get up to X percent of the business, 5% or whatever the work is that you agreed to to get me to this stage. And you cap it at, at some at some percentage-wise. Because if, as an entrepreneur, if I start giving away my equity to my family, my friends, my my kind of angel investors, and now to my employees, I don't really have a lot left. So when you get to the institutional side and they want to know that you as a founder are still involved in the business, you need to hold a decent share. Let's put that into practical sense. If I turn around as an institutional investor and now I come and invest and I realize you only hold 10% of the company, and you have another series of dilution. So if more money comes into the business, you now get diluted further, more than 10%. If things go wrong, what's the incentive for you to keep working? I'm going to the Bahamas. (laughs) You've got to make sure that you're still invested in the success of the company. And that's the the way the equity works. I need you to have north of 30% of the company to make sure that even in the tough times in adversity, you're willing to work because you know you still own a lot of this company, this was your vision and that's what you're delivering on. And that figure you mentioned, 30%, that's what you'd recommend, something north of that? Yes, I I, I would think so as a ballpark. Nothing here that we're discussing is absolutely definitive, but if we look at ballpark numbers generally. There are other ways, of course, of finding expertise and networks and experienced people, and they would be the accelerators and the incubators. But one of the questions I often get asked is, what is the difference between these two things. Can you explain the difference between them? Sure. The incubators, let's deal with that one first. And the whole idea with an incubator, as it's kind of said by the word, is to have disruptive ideas with a hope of building out a business and a model and a company. And the accelerator 
is the whole idea that you've already got an existing company, but it's working on the growth of that company. So accelerators focus on scaling a business, what we've been discussing, while incubators are often more focused on the innovation and creating that business. There's a great analogy that's always been used and, and, and you see it around quite often where it talks about incubators as a tool for the childhood of a startup and accelerators guide the entrepreneur from adolescence to adulthood. So I, I think that's a great analogy to, to consider in, in terms of that mentality. So there you have it. There's plenty of money in the startup world. You just need to know where to look. How to Build an Online Business was produced by Dave Swalensky. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Recorded in the Podcast One Studios, Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or look us up on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>